Third base, I really only, you know, we may talk about a couple of names, but there's really only one name to talk about in the 1980s, and that's Mike Schmidt. Uh, you know, bias aside, Philadelphia Phillies, uh, Schmidt led all of baseball in home runs in the 1980s, just took his game to a whole other level, starting with the 1980 season, winning his first MVP, and then going back-to-back in 81, winning the MVP again in 86 to go along with five gold gloves. Uh, he was just the preeminent uh, third baseman of of his generation, and you know there are names out there like George Brett, sure. who is a great Hall of Fame baseball player, but unfortunately for George Brett, he's Kansas City fans may disagree with me, but George Brett was great in a different way, but Mike Schmidt was great in a way that made people really pay attention. So you talk about George Brett, and you remember this guy, our grandpa. He he had this. Uh, our mom's dad had this obsession with putting the ultimate lineup together. Yes, that's right. <laughs> and he'd always talk about that he wanted the Phillies to trade for George Brett, like like the the Royals are going to give it up. And was was he going to put Brett in left field? That I don't remember. Yeah, I just remember he was he was obsessed with George Brett and Ken Griffey Senior. Ken, Ken Griffey Senior. Yeah, and he was yeah, and he was going to like move players around to different positions. Yeah, and but because I. Even before I really knew a lot about George Brett, I just remember Grandpa talking about him all the time. Yeah, and so and then of course, then Brett goes on to be this you know a, a Hall of Fame hitter, especially a good enough third baseman. Yeah, he was you know, a good athlete. He was he was a he was a great hitter, great yeah. hitter, great contact hitter. Made one of the great runs at the four hundred average in nineteen eighty. Mm-hmm. Finishes with a three ninety average. I think. Uh, he was the last player to go into September with a 400 average. I don't even think Tony Gwynn ever did that, even though Tony finished his season at 394, which was slightly higher than George Brett's 390. But um, you know, on a great Kansas City Royals team, he was clearly the fan favorite and the best player on on that team. And he played the game the right way. He did. I mean, he he ran hard. He played hard. It, it, he played through injuries. He he was he was definitely a tough guy. He he loved the game. Had a nice long career. Just battled, and you know, every year you'd look up the stats, and there he would have you know three hundred uh, three hundred batting average, two, close to two hundred hits. He, you know, he'd he'd have some power numbers, but you know, just a consistent player. How how unbelievably hard would it be to win a batting title in three different decades? which he did. He won a batting mm-hmm. title in the 70s. He won a batting, uh, I think, two batting titles in the 80s. And then he won one in 1990 at the at the tail end of his career. That's incredible. I mean, right. that's Ted Williams stuff right there, uh, to have to win it in three different three different decades. Yeah, yeah, it puts you on a rarefied list. It does. And it, it's, you know, he plays the same position as Mike Schmidt. And Mike Schmidt was just, in addition to being the, probably the top power hitter of his era, 
he was, you know, clearly the best defensive third baseman who wasn't Brooks Robinson. Right. Okay. So let's move to outfield. Uh, I'll throw six names out at you. And we talked about a couple of them already. Mm-hmm. So tell me if I'm missing anybody or, or if you want to jump in on any of these names. Tony Gwynn, Dave Winfield, Ricky Henderson, Andre Dawson. Oh, I'm sorry, five names. And Dwight Evans. So uh, the I would add to that uh, Kirby Puckett. I thought about that. And I would add Tim Raines. I thought about that as well. Um, Tim Raines had a, a, a great career, kind of, unfortunately for him, you know, he is now in the Hall of Fame, and deservedly mm-hmm. so. But, yeah, as far as the National League goes, I don't necessarily think about Tim Raines as much. He, he kind of fell off, fell off my radar a little bit. You know, Tony Gwynn, to me, gets a lot of notoriety because of him just being such a pure hitter. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when we talked about Schmitty, there's, there's a name that we left off the list that I think are, uh, you know, somebody who's deserving of mention is Wade Boggs. Yeah, I have him written down as well. Yeah. And actually, I, I have quite a high opinion of Wade Boggs, uh, even so much in, in the 80s, in, in the 90s as well, because he was a great two-decade player. Mm-hmm. But um, Tony Gwynn, to me, was the, the contact hitter of his generation. Uh, obviously, you have Ricky Henderson, who's the base stealer of his generation. And uh, Andre Dawson may have been the most supremely talented player of his generation. You know, you could make that argument of the in 1980s. Andre Dawson was just not only a great offensive player, but a great defensive player as well. Unfortunately for him, you know, knee injuries kind of put things down towards the end. But when he was with the Expos and up to the point where he went to the Cubs, there wasn't you know, there are a few as good as Andre Dawson in the outfield defensively because he had not only great great range and a great glove, but he he had one of the best arms to go along with it as well. And there's an example of somebody that ends up changing positions, you know, as injuries or age kind of slowed him down. He went from being, you know, probably the best center fielder all around, you know, offensively and defensively when he was with Montreal. And then he his knees were just so bad that you remember he he wanted to play for the Cubs during the collusion period, and he basically said, "Please sign me," because of the grass field. I want to play on grass, yeah. and that you know whatever you want to sign me for, I will. You know whatever it is. Uh, that's I'll, right. I do remember that. He gave him a blank contract. Kind of gave him a blank check. Yeah, and, and said literally whatever you want, and then I'll he, play. And then he goes out and wins the MVP that year. He does. And then, of course, then the Andrews get in trouble for collusion. But that, that's the only way that they would even sign him was him just begging to, to you know go over and play for them. And then he plays right field, and he becomes one of the better right fielders. Right. Yeah. yeah like I said, before the injuries took its toll, uh, just a wonderful player to watch out on the field. Uh, you know, younger people that, that when you think of 90s baseball and beyond – uh, you know, you got to watch Junior, Ken Griffey Jr. play. You got to watch just some of the great athletes of their time. And, and Andre Dawson was just, he was a pleasure to watch. You know, it was like watching Vlad Guerrero or just somebody out there who who just had these incredible tools. And Andre Dawson made the, you know, made the best of it. You know, he's a great baseball player, very hardworking baseball player, very humble baseball player. Uh, but man, was he, you know, when the Expos played somebody other than the Phillies, sure. he was fun to watch. Yeah. 
But like, uh, but talk about Tim Raines a little bit because it was somebody that I did leave off the list. Well, Tim Raines was he he was somebody that came up as a second baseman. You know, uh, he they tried the Expos tried very hard to let him play second base. He just couldn't stick, so he ends up going and he plays left field. But you know, his nickname was the Rock. So Tim the Rock Raines, switch hitter, uh, muscular. Yeah, you know, the the rock, I think, was due to his physique. And not super tall, but incredibly fast. And he comes in and takes the National League by storm. And he's just, he's the National League's version of Ricky Henderson when it comes to base stealing. So his rookie year is 1981, and he plays in that strike-shortened season. So that season only went for about, what was it, about 108 games? Something so, like that, yeah. yeah. So he steals 70-plus bases in a little over 100 games. Uh, makes it look easy. I mean, he, it's, he was so – you don't really see rookies come in and look that advanced as ball players, but he looked like somebody that had been uh, – especially running the bases. Mm-hmm. It was like he was toying with, with the other teams because a lot of times he would pull up as he was sliding into second base. We learned out later why he was doing that. Uh, you know, because he he came clean, you know, came honest about a, a very serious drug issue. That's why he started sliding head first, right? Because he kept the vial of cocaine in his back pocket, and he didn't want to break it and have it come out on the field. But he was how, but, how sad is that <laughs> that you actually have have to have drugs on you while you're playing? But it was it was unbelievable that when you would watch him steal bases, he would literally be slowing down before he would even go to the bag because he's that far so far ahead of the throw. And he's just cruising into the bag. He was, he was uh, uh, at at least in the early '80s up until when Vince Coleman comes around in the National League. Like you said, he was the equivalent to Ricky Henderson uh, for the National League. And now you mentioned Vince Coleman. I mean, Vince Coleman was you know, probably a better base stealer, but he was nowhere near the hitter that Tim no. Raines was. I mean, and Tim, Tim Raines gets into the Hall of Fame, yes, because of the stolen bases, but. I think it's primarily because of, of his ability as a hitter. Well, like you, like you said, you, you talked about – I talked about Pete Rose. You talked about Keith Hernandez. There was a generation of hitters that wasn't necessarily concerned about how many home runs they hit. But to a guy like a Tim Raines, he was never somebody that you could put a shift on because he was going to rip the ball down the line or, or, or split the gap and hit the ball into the alleys. You know, he, was, he was worried about – uh, stretching singles into doubles, stretching doubles into triples. You know, he was able to use his use his speed and his line drive ability to still have a high slugging percentage, even though he wasn't necessarily somebody that was going to hit 30 to 40 home runs. I, I love that era of baseball. And, and you would have these, these base stealers who were intimidators. You know, they would get on and they would get inside a pitcher's head. You know, they, they dance around first base. They'd almost toy with them. And, you know... You could tell it would distract the pitcher so much that it would affect how they were throwing to to the batter. Well, we mentioned the running Redbirds of the 1980s with Whitey Herzog. Mm -hmm. And think back, I think it was like, I don't know, 1986, 1987. You had Vince Coleman, 100-plus steals. You had Willie McGee, probably 70 steals. You had Ozzie Smith, probably 40 to 50. Tom Herr, probably 20 to 30. I mean, for crying out loud, Terry Pendleton was stealing 20 to 30 bases a year. And they just they wreaked such havoc. I remember as a as a as a teenage fan watching the Phillies play St. Louis, it was stressful because you would you would literally watch your team melt down mm-hmm. 
out there on the field because they didn't know what to do with all these guys running running around. It was kind of like when we used to play softball against the Amish kids <laughs> because they were always going to take the extra base yeah. and you had to be ready for it. Right. And it was just, it was different than, uh, than what we were used to. And I, I'm sure that Phillies were probably going through the same thing out there. Sure. Yeah. No, it, it, it definitely put pressure on the defense to have somebody like a Tim Raines out there. Now he's kind of the exception to, you know, how I say I, I kind of really favor defensive players where he wasn't that great. He, he was serviceable. He was in many ways, he was kind of a failed second baseman. I think if the era that we're in now, he may have just been a DH. You know, I think when he goes over to the Chicago White Sox, he does DH quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And he still played in the field somewhat, but right. he was an offensive player. Yeah, definitely. Okay, uh, DH. There's really one name in the 80s uh, that stands out to me, and, and I think a lot of it had to do with the success that he had with multiple teams and the fact that he was considered a, a big team leader was Don Baylor. Okay. Don Baylor was uh, you know, one of the best DHs that I can remember. Uh, Harold Baines mm-hmm. was kind of the, really the first of his kind, the first considered plus designated hitter. Uh, of his generation with Chicago. He now he started out as a right fielder. Right. And then he eventually he had some knee injuries and then he started DHing. So do you not consider Paul Molitor one of the 80s DHs? No, I consider him for the 90s. Okay. Um because even though he did do some DHing in the 80s, he was uh primarily he played all different kinds of positions. Mm-hmm. First base, right field, second base, third base. Yep. Uh, you know, he was kind of a jack of all trades, and I think he was still playing more in the field than he was DHing, which is why I decided. Now, for my players of the '90s, Paul Molitor is my DH of the '90s. Okay. Um, but I had Don Baylor because at that point he was very established as a designated hitter for for that time, and he's really the guy that stood out to me in that decade. Okay. Yeah, I mean, so like for on my DH list, he's number one. But once again, I'm taking 80s and 90s into consideration. Sure. Okay. Um, to throw some names of 80s pitchers out there for you. Uh, starters, Steve Carlton, Roger Clemens, Oral Hershiser, Dwight Gooden. And then for my closers, I have Lee Arthur Smith and Dennis Eckersley. Okay. Um, any any names that... that you would also want to think about. I mean, obviously, the the Mets had that great rotation of '86. Um, there were some some really good pitchers in the '80s. Uh, Mike Norris had some great years for the Oakland A's. How about that, Fernando Valenzuela? That was another name that I considered as uh, as well. Did you Gen Xers out there? Do you remember Fernando Mania? Fernando Mania was legit, uh, and I think what he went like his first eight or nine starts. I, I don't remember. I just remember getting Sports Illustrated, and he was like the cover boy of Sports Illustrated that year. Because he won Rookie of the Year and Cy Young in the same season. The uh, strike shortened year. 1981. And, and it's when the Dodgers did win the World Series. Correct. Yeah. Fernando Mania, that, that was one I did consider. Uh, I ultimately chose Dwight Gooden because Dwight Gooden, to me, was the most... He was like the Bob Gibson of the 1980s, as far as... A guy who could just you 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 expected perfection every time he took the mound, and his two seasons, his rookie season in '84, his second season in 1985. I would put those two years up against any two years sure. of any pitcher in history. Yeah, uh, he was just exceptional, 
and really almost single-handedly pitched the Mets into the playoffs in 85. They weren't quite ready yet as a team, but he was so great over the top, and I think he had like a ERA of like 1.5. Yeah, he was just unhittable that year and uh, consistently you know, great. Well, we didn't get to see Sandy Koufax pitch. So we didn't get to see, you know, those few years where he just was like the greatest pitcher ever. And But I think we got to see it with Dwight Gooden. I mean, there there were other people that had much better careers, absolutely. But you're right, for about two, maybe three years, he was unquestionably the greatest pitcher in baseball. Yeah, I mean, and I put him on my all-decade team because if you actually look at the numbers that he puts up at the end of the decade, he's still as good as anybody else in you know anybody else pitching at that particular time so you know just to to look at some of his stats he won the his rookie year he wins 17 uh 85 24 wins 86 17 87 15 88 18 and 89 was when he ended up going to rehab so he only wins nine that year but there aren't any i i don't think there's any other pitchers maybe jack morris would be a name that that may have equaled him in wins in that stretch, but he wasn't as dominant. He's on a you know Doc Gooden's on a very short list here, it, you know, from nineteen eighty four to nineteen eighty nine. I remember watching games where he would pitch, and if he was on that night, he was untouchable. He still to this day he throws the best curveball I've ever seen in the major leagues. It was just such a knee buckler that when, like you said, when it was on, uh, you even if you swung at it. You couldn't hit it. So, I mean, is it better to have somebody with that long, sustained career? Or is it better to have that, to see that little glimmer, that moment where where someone is just the greatest? You know, uh, Doc Gooden did come up just shy of 200 wins. I mean, the guy had a career. He had a career, but he wasn't Tom Seaver. He wasn't Nolan Ryan. I mean, Nolan Ryan had, back in the 70s, I mean, he was the no-hit king. Sure. I mean, he was spectacular, but then he was able to sustain it well into his 40s. And Nolan Ryan, unfortunately, had a very mediocre one-loss career. He got to 300 wins based on sheer volume because he had 300 wins, but he almost had 300 losses, too. How old was he? Was he he at least, was he 45 or so? 47, I think. 47? Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he he pitched until he... he, Because he pitched 27 years in baseball. Okay. Yeah, so I think he got came in when he was 19 and retired when he was 47. Yeah. So, um, from that Mets team, another player that, y- you know, you also mentioned is uh, who was who was great in the 80s, Daryl Strawberry. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, getting off the pitcher side. But Daryl Strawberry, another guy who kind of had his issues with drugs, unfortunately probably cost him uh, a little bit of that greatness, probably cost him the Hall of Fame. Because you look at his overall numbers, you know, he's up over 400 home runs for his career. You know, he, he kind of has that that fringe kind of those, those numbers that probably had, had another two or three exceptional years in replace of some of those mediocre years where it was probably drug-induced. Uh, you know, you're probably looking at a Hall of Fame baseball player. Interesting with a guy like Strawberry in that he, you know, he comes up with the Mets. He's the, he's the first overall pick in the draft. He's, he comes in with all this fanfare, and you know he delivers. He's well, he's not the best hitter on the team for the Mets. He's the most dangerous. He, he's the one you feared. You know, he was the guy that could uh, you know take take you out of the ballpark at any time. He 
He then goes back home to Los Angeles. He signs with the Dodgers, and it was there were some bad influences around him, and he just couldn't handle it. And as you say, Scott, there were some wasted years. Interestingly, he goes from being this problem child, the type of player that you have on your team where you don't want him, you're afraid he's going to be a bad influence. Mm-hmm. He then leaves, and he, he changes his life. And he goes in place for the Yankees, and he cleans himself up, and now he is the veteran that keeps everybody on track. Right, yeah, because he does bring experience, you know, to the to the table, and he is still credited for probably hitting the longest home run in the history of Montreal Stadium, Olympic Stadium. That was after they put the roof on the top. He actually hit the speaker tower mm-hmm. under the uh, the dome in right center field which they couldn't measure it at the, at the time, but they estimated it was probably about 520 feet. Just a guy that could, even though he wasn't a big, you know, he was strong. You could tell he was strong. But he kind of had that, still had that kind of that thin uh, build about him. But, man, when he hit home runs, he could, he had this unbelievable bat whip, the ability to whip the bat and just generate this incredible power. And then, of course, there was that episode of The Simpsons where <laughs> he was playing for the uh, the isotopes of the softball team, and he was in right field, and with Bart and Lisa were like razzing him, going, Daryl, Daryl, which we used to do back in the day, uh-huh. is go, and when the when the Mets would come in and play the Phillies, you go out there and just yell, Daryl, Daryl, at him. And, of course, there's a little tear coming down his eye well, with the Simpsons. And then Mr. Burns pinch hits him with Homer in the last inning, and Daryl goes, but, Coach, I've hit nine home runs already. <laughs> yeah, that was, a, that was a great episode. Revisit that one, uh, definitely. Two more names to talk about, um, Oral Hershiser and Roger Clemens uh, from Starting Pitching. Oral Hershiser had one of the greatest runs at the end of the season in, in modern pitching history because he set the record at the time for most consecutive shutout innings in 1988 going into the World Series. And, you know, it's one of those things where uh, he was so single-mindedly focused on winning the World Series that year and pitched an incredible number of innings in the uh, postseason to the point of where it probably hurt him for the rest of his career because mm-hmm. he was never the same pitcher after that. And he would go, he would come in and pitch in relief, and he would start games right at you know, two days later. So he did, he did damage to himself. Um, but man, what a run! Nineteen eighty-eight. It was you know the, probably the two biggest stories were Kirk Gibson and Oral Hershiser. But Oral Hershiser, was Kirk Gibson was hurt. He only hit. Had one at bat in the World right, Series. Right, the one big home run. Earl Hershiser was really the guy that carried them to victory. Yeah, no, I, and I think that's a name that gets forgotten. I mean, I, I got to admit, it, it, he's, it's not the first name that pops into my head. And But as you say that, yeah, he in 1988, he was by far the best pitcher. Yeah. Um, and then Roger Clemens, um, you know, side, you know, and Sean, you kind of put the disclaimer on before we started having this discussion because – Part of Gen X is dealing with the steroid era, mm-hmm. and Roger Clemens' name is pretty much right there, you know, front front and center in in that steroid discussion. Uh, however, it's not really associated with the Roger Clemens of the 1980s. Well, then you'd have to say Barry Bonds would be the same because we didn't Correct. talk about him. Correct. Although Barry Bonds in the 1980s didn't he didn't become Barry Bonds the great player in my opinion until about 1989. Uh, so he is he. Uh, 
makes my list of the all '90s team okay. in the outfield. He, does, he doesn't quite there yet because there are names that I put above. That. Right. So yeah, no, you're right. Roger Clemens, at least in the, the 1980s, there certainly wasn't even a hint of the uh, the steroid issue. But I I remember him when he was at Texas. We watched him on ESPN when yeah. they won the World Series, the College yeah. World Series. I mean, this was a known quantity that that you know you. Because ESPN's around now, as as young Gen Xers, we're able to follow the careers of a lot of these athletes when they are in college. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but that also had a couple other major leaguers on that pitching staff. Wasn't it Calvin Chiraldi? Was he on that team? I think he was. He played for the Mets. And there was a a lefty, uh, Greg Swindell, was also on that team. So they were pretty stacked in in college. But uh, that was... Back when ESPN was trying to find whatever they could to, yeah. to find airtime, they, they obviously needed to cover 24 hours. So they started covering the College World Series because nobody else did. And they were able to market it and turn it into what kind of what it is today. Mm-hmm. That's that's a pat on the back to ESPN, but it really started. That was the first College World Series that I really remember. And then after that, you start hearing names coming out of college, like the Pete Incavelias of the yeah. world, the Robin Venturas of the world. Sure, it kind of it kind of made college baseball relevant. We knew who Will Clark was. Yes, before Mississippi he signed. State. Sure. So when there, when the first round uh, of the Major League Baseball draft would, would come out, we knew who a lot of these players were because we had seen them. Right. Okay. Um, but yeah, Roger Clemens, uh, 1986, set the modern day strikeout record for strikeouts in a game with 20. Goes on to have almost as great a season as Dwight Gooden did the year before and really establishes really establishes himself as the best pitcher in the American League uh, for a starting pitcher at you know closing out the 1980s even though you know there's 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 some great pitchers out there uh, Dave Stewart for mm-hmm. Oakland uh, there was there were some really good ones but when Roger Clemens w- would be on his game much like Dwight Gooden uh, those guys were about as unhittable as you could as you could get. Clemens was dominant in a different way than Doc, because uh, where Clemens would kind of overpower you with the fastball, uh, Doc Gooden would uh, use the curveball as much to strike guys out as he would the fastball. And I think Doc probably had two more lethal pitches, where Clemens had uh, really good pitches, but it was set up by an unbelievable fastball. I mean, obviously, when you look at the numbers, the for for the career, Clemens has some spectacular numbers. You know, we talk about is it better to have the the short little window or the long career? You know, that's where the uh, the the PEDs come into play. Sure, um, but yeah, it that kind of set up that 1986 World Series, which you know we're not really talking about here tonight. But they, the fact that Good and and Clemens by far the the two dominant pitchers of the game and young pitchers at the time. We're facing off, you know, two of the major markets. That that's something that we, we should probably de- dedicate some time to, just because 1986 that that World Series really uh, really stood out. I think there's a lot of people that weren't necessarily baseball fans that might have gotten into the sport because of that. Sure, and and obviously one of the most famous calls in the history of the sport um, with Buckner you know, between the legs, yeah, yeah, with Vin Scully. So, all right, let's close out the 80s and let's let's go into the 1990s, and then we'll go through our top. Uh, top list so the catcher in the 1990s for me is pudge rodriguez you know there are some other names out there but for uh yvonne pudge rodriguez 
he really did establish himself as the preeminent catcher of that particular era. Yep. Uh, any other names that stand out that you want to mention? Mike Piazza? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Piazza, great offensive, uh, great offensive catcher. Um, but he was a defensive liability. And as much as I loved Darren Dutch Dalton with the Phillies, and he probably gutted out the most, I would say, the most courageous catching career of his uh, of that era. Um, he had two great years, Dutch Dalton did, and the rest were probably beset by injuries. Mm-hmm. But you're right. You know, Mike Piazza, the, the best offensive catcher by numbers of all time. He surpassed everything that Johnny Bench put out there. Um, not only hit for power, but hit for average, uh, could hit in the clutch. He was, uh, like I said, you would watch teams in the All-Star game, you know, just run at will on on Mike Piazza. I don't think I ever saw him throw a, run, uh, throw a base runner out. True, but when I did go to the 1996 All-Star game, he was the MVP. True. And he is from a local guy, relatively. I mean, he's from, like, Norristown area. Yeah, and, he is. And uh, by all accounts, a really cool dude. Yes. And one of the best right-handed swings I've ever seen. Uh, yeah, and I had the privilege of actually watching his Hall of Fame induction speech in person at Cooperstown. We were at, up there that year when he and Ken Griffey Jr. got voted in. So that was kind of, that was a pleasure, and yes, he, he delivered a great speech. And you're right. Uh, you know, I mentioned Pudge Rodriguez, and I omitted Mike Piazza and... He deserves to be in, in that category to be mentioned, but yes. I mean, yeah, I mean, if you're going all-around catcher, sure. You know, Padre Rodriguez was a spectacular defensive player and a really good hitter. Yes, and there were there were some good defensive catchers out there. Uh, Sandy Alomar Jr. Mm-hmm. comes to mind. But again, Padre Rodriguez really did kind of set himself apart because he did combine the offense and the defense. Uh, Piazza, just a phenomenal, like you said, a phenomenal hitter. What I remember most about Mike Piazza didn't happen in the 90s, but it actually happened in the early 2000s, was when the Mets came back after the uh, World Trade Centers got bombed Mm -hmm. and they played in New York for the first time. And they're losing, and he hits a game-winning come-from-behind home run to walk it off. And I think as a city for, for New York fans, I was actually very happy for New York fans because it just seemed like the place exploded at Shea Stadium. It was it was pretty neat as a fan of baseball to watch something like that happen where you have your best player do something like that to to lift up the fans like that. Right. So yeah, that's that. Alamore would be probably the other guy I would come up with. Sure. All right. First base. Any, any guys that you have that come to mind? Uh, for first base, I have like Frank Thomas. That's who I had. Yeah. I mean, I'd say out of the nineties, he's, he's probably the, the main, the main first baseman that jumped out. For me, okay, because you know, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not putting Mark McGuire on the list, right? I and I didn't either. And defensively, uh, a name that never gets mentioned anymore is J.T. Snow. Sure, J.T. Snow. J.T. Snow was a really good. He was he was an oddity in that he was one of those rare baseball players that fielded left-handed but batted right-handed. Yeah, and but again, it's those lefty first baseman. But he was really smooth. Yeah, and actually took over for Will Clark after he left the Giants, and had several really good, really good years with the uh, Giants, and then later I think it was with the Angels. Uh, so, uh, what, what are your thoughts on Jeff Bagwell? Uh 
Jeff Bagwell is a very good offensive player. Certainly, to me, not in the category of Frank Thomas. And Jeff, if you're listening, I, you know, I apologize, but I was surprised when he got voted into the Hall of Fame. And also, uh, you know, he played at the time he played for the Astros, which at that point the Astros had made the move over to the American League, so I didn't get to, you know I didn't really watch mm-hmm. him that much. I, I saw the numbers, and he had good numbers, but, you know, so did Andres Galarraga with the Colorado Rockies, uh, you know, and, and uh, so the, you know, the numbers made you pay attention, but I really don't remember seeing Bagwell when the when Phillies would play Houston. I don't really remember seeing him having particularly good games against the Phillies. So it didn't really stand out to me as as for greatness, even though, Obviously, the guy is in the Hall of Fame. Larry Anderson would be proud of you. Really? <laughs> <laughs> you know, because he was traded for Jeff Bagwell. You know, that's that was the the big thing is Philly's broadcaster when he was, you know, with the, the Red Sox. With the Red Sox, yeah. yeah. The Houston. I mean, that was the trade. The Red Sox traded for Larry Anderson. That's right. And traded Jeff Bagwell. Holy crap. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Our, our good old L.A. Yep. The great L.A. All right. Uh, second base. Second uh, base. Robbie Alomar. I had Robbie Alomar. Yeah, I also, that was my my first choice. My second choice would have been uh, Craig Biggio. He's, he's on my list too. Yeah, uh, Craig Biggio to me was the ultimate uh, grinder. Great, great contact hitter and had surprising power when he needed it. I remember when the Phillies were playing Houston and they had, uh, the Phillies had Billy Wagner at the time. And... Craig Biggio's up. There's two outs in the ninth inning, and Houston's down by a run. There's a runner on base. Billy Wagner's throwing 100 miles an hour, and he throws a pitch, and Biggio opens up the hips, and all you hear is this crack, and Harry Callis doesn't doesn't describe <laughs> what's going on. The first words out of his mouth is, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> I don't remember that. You remember that one? I totally remember that. <laughs> And I, I just, I'll never forget it because he didn't say long drive no. like he normally does. Yeah. He, Biggio just, just op- turns on that ball, 100 mile an hour fastball, and jacks it out in the, the, the seats in left field. And HK goes, You gotta be kidding me. Well, you know, he was a player that came up as a catcher. That's true. And, and then it's, that goes to the grinder, right? So he, he then he plays center field, and then eventually he makes himself into a second baseman. Pretty amazing that you have this Hall of Fame player that is playing three, um, yeah, three pretty important spots right up the middle. And he's not, he's not the graceful athlete that, that uh, Robbie Alomar is. Right. I mean, Robbie Alomar is... As far as defensive second baseman, I've never seen anyone better. If if there was a player that if you could like paint your prototypical type player to play mm-hmm. second base, I think Robbie Alomar is that player. He was he was smooth. He he I mean he had incredible feet. I mean it, it usually players like that are playing shortstop. On that ninety three Blue Jays team that played the Phillies in the World Series, to me, he was the greatest at his position. And sure. that was on a team of great players. That was a great lineup. In and on both teams. Yeah. I mean he was he was the best player. I mean, Paul Molitor, you know, was was dominant. I mean, he's a Hall of Famer and he was the DH. And but as far as the an all around player, Robbie Elmar was the best player on the field. Yeah. How about shortstop? What stands out to you? Uh the nineties. Well, you know, Cal's in the nineties too. 
A little bit. Some. Yeah. Um, it, you know, he was the, especially in the early part of the 90s, there's there's two names that I thought of besides Cal Ripken Jr. Uh, they're, and they're different type players. But, uh, you know. Oh, go ahead. I had Barry Larkin. Okay. With the Reds. Sure. And I had Omar Vizquel with the Indians. I was thinking Vizquel. Yeah. Uh, how is it that Omar Vizquel is not in Hall of Fame? Yeah, Omar Vizquel is, is my kind of shortstop. Omar Vizquel, if there wasn't Ozzie Smith, would be considered Ozzie Smith because he was, you know, Ozzie Smith is the best defensive shortstop you and I have ever seen. Omar Vizquel is the second best defensive shortstop I've ever seen. And and he wasn't a bad hitter. 20, over almost 2,900 hits. I mean, he just missed 3,000. Yeah. what am I missing? Why isn't the guy uh, I mean, in the Hall of Fame? I mean, he played for Seattle for a while, and I mean, it kind of when they were in the, some of the dark years with them, I guess, where people didn't see him play. But he was with Cleveland for all those years when they were great. Yeah. And then he ends up uh, going to San Francisco, plays a number of years with them. You know, the guy, like Ozzie Smith, became a very good major league hitter by the end of his career. Uh, started out as a light-hitting shortstop, but by the end, you know, like I said, the guy fell just short of 3,000 hits. Yeah. He should be in the Hall of Fame, in my opinion. Yeah, and, and also, you know, I think you bring up a good name with Barry Larkin. You know, Barry, Barry Larkin was a dominant player, you know, on the, on the, for the Cincinnati Reds. And he was, you know, he, he was probably a, a better offensive player um, than, than Omar was. Uh, it, but not quite the defensive player, but, but still a very, very good defensive player. Sure. All right. Uh, third base. There's some names that stood out to me. So I had uh, Vinny Castilla. Okay. Matt Williams. Wade Boggs and Robin Ventura. Okay. The 90s, to me, didn't really have like that one player like the 80s, like no. Mike Schmidt. No. Or, uh, you know, there were a number of third basemen that you were You had guys there. like Ken Caminiti. Yes. Uh, you would have a guy like a Dave Hollins with the Phillies. You know, that type of player, a good player, but not necessarily a generational player. Right. And and Vinny Castilla put up big numbers with the Rockies, but that was in when, Colorado. Yeah, you yeah. and I could probably hit 300 mm-hmm. in Colorado. Uh, I'm kidding, of no. course. Uh, but, you know, Vinny Castilla immediately, I think he got traded to St. Louis. Did he go to the Cardinals? I'm not sure. But he immediately, you, you saw that the difference and i think that's ultimately why some colorado rockies players are on you know you look at their numbers and you say well are they good enough for the hall of fame but that may be why they're not considered for the hall of fame because of the ballpark i'll I'll give you a name um and this is a player that played there some but he also played a lot of other positions and that would be chipper jones yeah, uh, you know, I, I thought sure, of Chipper. He played shortstop, he played third, he played left field. He was somebody that, kind of like a Pete Rose type of player that just got moved around as, you know, a Ryan Klesko comes up, and now he's the left fielder. So, all right, Chipper's going to go play third. Yeah, and Chipper, um, great Hall of Fame player, great hitter, killed the Phillies over the years. Um, you know, we saw enough of him, you know, the 20 years that he played for Atlanta. Uh, but like you said, I mean, he he – was never firmly entrenched in one particular position because he played around mm-hmm. the field. Credit to him for being a team player, but on a list like this, it probably hurts him as somebody that's looking at it from my eyes. Sure. So, But that's a good name, a very good name. And had he not gotten hurt, 
before the 93 season because he was supposed to be on that team and he was their most hyped prospect, mm-hmm. would the Phillies have been able to get past the Braves to go to the World Series that year? Ah, uh, good question. But the fact is the Phillies made the World Series. And That's right. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. That's right. Too bad, Braves. All right. Outfielders. And this is a great era for for outfielders. Probably more so outfielders than infielders. Yeah. So uh, the names that stand out to me are uh, Barry Bonds, Ken Griffey Jr. Uh, you have Sammy Sosa, who put up huge numbers as well. And there's also a, no, a name that kind of got forgotten a little bit, but had a great run in the 90s was Andrew Jones from the Braves. Yeah. And I'll throw out some other names. Uh, Kenny Lofton. Yeah, sure. And Larry Walker. Larry Walker started with Montreal and then went to Colorado. Um, yeah, he just got just got into the Hall of mm-hmm. Fame. So, congrats to him. But yeah, I think Ken- people forget how good Kenny Lofton was. Kenny Lofton was an on base machine. Unfortunately, by the time he got to the Phillies, he was on the downside of his career. But when he was with Cleveland, yeah, he was one of the great table setters in baseball at that time. He was he was a good hitter. Uh, you know, it was a. Very, very fast, good um, base stealer, and, and a really good center fielder. Yeah. Yep, definitely. Um, pitchers. Another great era for pitchers. I have all kinds of names here. Oh, you're going to hit all my names, so go ahead. I have Greg Maddox. Yeah. Randy Johnson. Mm-hmm. Pedro Martinez. Yeah. Tom Glavin. I have Roger Clemens again, but then for relievers, I have Trevor Hoffman, John Franco, and Mariano Rivera. John Franco... Yet to get into the Hall of Fame, which surprises me because based on numbers and length of career, uh, you know, Franco is one of those forgotten players that maybe because he wasn't an overpowering pitcher, he didn't have a Rich Gossage, Goose Gossage fastball. He didn't have a Rivera cutter. He was just a guy that got outs. And he's still, I think, in the top 10 all-time in saves uh, for a career. Yeah, he was effective. Uh, um I, was he traded straight up for Norm Charlton? Was that the I think deal? so, yeah. Because I remember him with Cincinnati, and mm-hmm. then he was a, he was a really good relief pitcher. Then he goes to the Mets, and he he you know like you said you know he was probably doesn't get his due because he wasn't a flamethrower, but he was super effective. Um, Hoffman wasn't really a flame uh, flamethrower either. Change up, and he got a lot of people out. It's so you know oftentimes you can have that specialty pitch like you said with a changeup where you come in with the, like a Bruce Suter with a good split finger fastball. Uh, you you can get people out. Um, yeah, it uh, you know pitchers. You had every one of the pitchers that I mentioned. You're, you're the first, I think five you you said there were all my top five that okay. I have from that era. And it was especially with the Braves. They were they were rolling out some major pitchers. I mean, yeah. we a name you don't even men, didn't mention because he didn't have a long career, but like a Steve Avery. Steve Avery, I didn't mention John Smoltz. Yeah. Uh, because it's true, you I mean, didn't I mention mean, John ne- Smoltz. Next to next to Matt, now Smoltz did win a Cy Young Award, but in terms of where he was at that point in his career, compared to Maddox and Glavin, Maddox and Glavin were clearly the one-two of that pitching staff. Sure, yeah. So that's why, and I wasn't going to put three Braves on the <laughs> on the '90s rotation, but you're right. I mean, John Smoltz certainly could have been considered for a list like this. And also, you know, Randy Johnson. I mean, what just what a spectacular career Johnson had, and I am old enough to remember when he came up and couldn't throw a strike. He was wild for about two years, two, three years, and, and it actually sent him down, and then he had to come back up again. But 
it sort of clicked in 93 was when it finally started to come together and when it clicked it it was probably the most dominant pitcher i've ever seen at least for like a career yeah i mean his postseason run in 1994 or i'm sorry not 94 there was no postseason in 94 sorry in 1995 when the mariners knocked out the yankees in the playoffs and that turned out to be don mattingly's last game as a as a pro but uh Randy Johnson's run through the playoffs was very reminiscent of Oral Hershiser ten you know, almost ten years before that with the Dodgers. And fortunately for Randy Johnson, it didn't affect him long term. He ended up going on to have a great uh, career. I think he he's the oldest pitcher in major league history to throw a perfect game. I think he did it at the age of forty one. Okay. Um and he did that with Arizona. So just an amazing career for for a guy like Randy Johnson who in the beginning, uh, coming in as the tallest, tied for the tallest player in Major League history at six foot ten, it just didn't look like he was ever going to get it together. But they said the same thing about Sandy Koufax too. But once those guys got going, they were, they were, you know, the preeminent lefties of their generation. Those lefties sometimes it takes them a little while, you know, and but when it, it clicks, it can, you know, it can be pretty amazing. All right. So without further ado, let's get to our list. Sure. All right. So why don't you go ahead with your um, did you did you do one or two? I did two. Okay. I did two, and I'll, I'll I actually did honorable mentions as well. Okay. So uh, I'm going to start with the catcher. So my catcher, my all-time Gen X catcher is Gary Carter. You know, for all the reasons that we mentioned. You know, number two is a Pudge Ivan Pudge Rodriguez. My uh, honorable mention was my Piazza. First base, uh, you know, I struggle with first base. This was one where I, I, I crossed names off and went back and forth. So my number one, just because he was the first player that I ever just became infatuated with, and that was Rod Carew. Okay. Loved Rod Carew. You did. Uh, it, he, he had the most unique batting stance that uh, of all time. He hit from that crouch, and he had that flat bat, and he just could – seemingly get a hit at will and i i just i really liked him and he had this once again i'm, I'm kind of drawn to the players with the good personalities and he just was this this kind of guy who always had this reputation of being really nice to kids yeah yeah as as i sung to you before we went on the we went on the record here i i sung uh oj simpson not a jew <laughs> but guess who is hall of famer rod carew rod, he converted rod carew uh, part of the reason why he stands out to me was the first All-Star game I ever watched was 1978. Okay. And that was the game where Rod Carew le- had back-to-back triples. That's right. I remember that. I do remember and that. And that, you know, as a kid, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm 10 at the time, and I was amazed at this guy. And it was his last year with the Twins. Yeah. But And he was a second baseman with the Twins. He then goes to the Angels and he becomes a first baseman. So he's my first baseman. I You can flip a coin with my number two, my honorable mention. It's Don Mattingly and Keith Hernandez. Okay. You know, for everything, like I said, that we talked about. Sure. Second base. I, I had to play with this a little bit with my first base. Second baseman is going to be Pete Rose. I was wondering if you were going to try and... F- you know, fit him on your team Pete, somewhere. Pete made his appearance at first base, second base, and left field as I was going through my list. Okay. So I just had to put Pete on there. It, you know, take take all the uh, you know the controversy with the with the gambling away. Pete was personified what you wanted in a baseball player, and he was. I mean, he's the all time hit king. 
And, yeah. you know, he was he was solely responsible, in my opinion, for finally getting the Phillies over the hump in 1980 because he brought a winner's attitude with him. And when people say, well, what's your position and stance on Pete Rose? I go, I'll tell you what my stance is. Game six of the 1980 World Series, the ball pops out of Bob Boone's glove, and who's standing in there to snag it out of the air but Pete Rose? Yeah, because at, at that point, and, and you talk to just about any Phillies fan that was alive when that play happened, at that point, Phillies fans, because you know they've had their hearts broken so many times, at that particular moment, I think just about every Phillies fan thought to themselves, "We're going to win finally." Absolutely, absolutely. So that you know, Pete Rose is number one, uh, n- number two, second base. But I'm going Robbie Alomar, and my honorable mention is going to be Craig Biggio. Okay. Shortstop, uh, you know, you can flip a coin with number one and number two. Uh, I my my brain tells me it's Cal Ripken Jr. My heart tells me Ozzie Smith. I, I I'm just biased. I, I think Ozzie's great. My honorable mention is Robin Yount. We yeah, didn't get, we didn't give any mention of Robin in this in this podcast. We mentioned it with Harvey's Wallbangers, yeah. but we, no, we didn't talk about the 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 greatness that was Robin Yount as a hitter who won a Gold Glove at shortstop and then won a Gold Glove when he moved to center field. Right, and only moved to center field because of a shoulder injury. Right, and he he had basically a ten year career at both positions and Hall of Fame numbers at both positions. Now moving Good on choice. to third base. You know, it's Mike Schmidt, number one, George Brett, number two. My, my honorable mention is Wade Boggs. Okay. Uh, left field, number one would be Barry Bonds. But I, I'll show Scott here. There's an asterisk next to Barry Bonds' name. Okay. I have now put next to his name Ricky Henderson. Okay. I, you know, Barry Bonds is probably the greatest ball player I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. But I just can't get past the fact with the, with, you know, with the steroid controversy. Um, you know, I put Ricky Henderson down. Um, number two, would, would, I put actually put Chipper Jones down as left field, and then I, my honorable mention was Tim Raines. But if the steroids weren't a part of it, it would be Bonds number one and Ricky Henderson number okay. two. Center field, Ken Griffey Jr., just spectacular player. Actually, your son Connor asked me on the list. He goes, "Who's your center fielder?" I go, "Ken Griffey Jr." And he goes, "Ah, <laughs> it's good to hear." Because that is Connor's favorite ball player of all time. That's why we went to Cooperstown that year. Let's uh, see, Ken Griffey Jr. So number two was Kenny Lofton. And number three, I have uh, Kirby Puckett. Okay. I consider Kirby Puckett. I yeah. did. Uh, right field, uh, number one, Tony Gwynn. Huge Tony Gwynn fan. Always really, really liked his approach to hitting and just thought he was just such a professional. Number two, Reggie Jackson. Uh, Mr. October. He, not not Mr. May, Mr. October. Mm-hmm. You know, Reggie had some of the biggest hits ever saw in my childhood. And my honorable mention was Larry Walker. I mean, I know mm-hmm. he, he put up a lot of numbers in Colorado. He was a stud with Montreal. But he was too. a stud with Montreal. Yeah. And so maybe the numbers ticked up a little bit. But, you know, it maybe the home runs went from 35 to 40. But, you know, he still put up big numbers no matter where he played. My DH, uh, my number one is Paul Molitor. Uh, Paul Molitor, may, he and Rod Carew were the two best hitters I've ever seen. Okay. Uh, just as far as pure hitters. Paul from the right side and Rod from the left. And no matter... What I was going to do, I was going to find a way to put, you know, Paul Molitor at one of the positions. Paul Molitor might be the only player in Major League history to get a triple on his three thousandth hit. Oh, I think okay. I think that's a, I think that's a fact. Could could be true. Yeah, but I'm pretty sure his three thousandth hit was a triple. But uh, I encourage people to go out there and look up YouTube videos of Paul Molitor hitting and Rod Carew hitting. 
And he was either 39 or 40 years old and had like 215 hits in one year. And But for the injuries, he would have had bigger numbers. I think it, with, with the injuries, he probably would have been thought of even higher than what he was because he, he was when he was healthy, he was a good defensive player. Yeah. And who played multiple positions. Yeah, yeah. And some key positions. I mean, he was a second baseman, a center fielder. You know, he played third base. So, uh, Molitor's number one. Number two, I think this is one of the only Hall of Famers not on my list. Edgar Martinez. I thought about him. Why does Edgar not get more love? You know, I don't know, because probably because he played out in Seattle. Is it the Armour Vizquel effect? Maybe. You know, people didn't see him during the, the prime of his career. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, it very well could be. But once again, uh, someone that I put up there with Mike Piazza with two of the best right-handed swings. I mean, to me, Paul Molitor has the best. But, uh, you know, Edgar and... and um, Mike Piazza, at least later in the '90s, you know, just spectacular. Okay. Uh, my, I put I put Frank Thomas down as my honorable mention because I, I wanted to get him in there. Right? Sure. Because Frank was great during the Gen X era. Now that closes up my my starting lineup. Now my my right-handed pitchers, it would been it would be number one would be Roger Clemens. Okay. But I have an asterisk next to his name as well. Okay. So he gets replaced by Greg Maddox. Okay. Number two, I, I'm, I put Nolan Ryan down uh, just because he had that long, spectacular career. And, you know, I just remember always being worried when he pitched. Sure. Um, but I have Tom Seaver down, as my honorable mention. You could maybe flip those guys. Left-handed pitchers, number one, Randy Johnson. He's, you know, probably the most dominant lefty I've ever seen. Number two, Steve Carlton. How is Steve Carlton not in the that guy's list? I don't know. The 70s. It just blows me away. Till Randy Johnson came along, Steve Carlton was the the best left-hander pitcher. Left-hander pitcher, I think, at least of the modern era. Yeah, and I think he was the oldest player in 1982, the oldest pitcher to win the Cy Young Award up to that point until uh, Clemens passed him, and I think Randy Johnson passed him. But uh, you know, I think he was like 38 or 39 in 1982, and. And won his fourth Cy Young Award, which at that time was a record yeah. as well. Yeah, and there's a statue to the man outside Citizens Bank Park. So, uh, Steve Carl, number two. Number four, uh, I can say it today. I would not have been able to say it 30 years ago, but Tom Glavin is my honorable yeah. mention. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard It's hard to go against Glavin. He had, he may have been the most, you know, Greg Maddox gets a lot of credit. Tom Glavin in the postseason was a better pitcher in the postseason mm-hmm. than Greg Maddox. And, yeah, you can't deny that. So that's a good list. All right, my turn. So my first team, catcher, I'm going Johnny Bench. Even though I really don't remember Johnny Bench, I'm going word of mouth. Gary Carter, I wanted so badly to put Gary Carter on this list just because I remember Gary Carter, the player. And I thought, you know, he was one of the toughest players the Phillies ever had to play against. He was, yeah. And I really wanted to give him every consideration, but you know, as far as his history goes, I would uh, you know, it was Johnny Bench, Pudge Rodriguez two, honorable mention, uh, Piazza and Gary Carter. I even had consideration for Lance Parrish, but they he didn't have near the career that, that the other guys did. No. So my first base, number one, first team, I go Frank Thomas. Okay. Uh Frank Thomas just had some incredible numbers. And was able to do it very consistently throughout his entire career. And he proved it by not only playing in Chicago, which wasn't one of the best places, one of the best venues to play, but he put up big numbers there. 
And then he ended up at the end of his career going out to Oakland and doing the same thing. I mean, the guy was just a pure hitter, especially impressive considering he was so big and it was rare to have guys with that much uh, muscularity to be that good of a batting average hitter. But not only did he hit for power, but he hit with high average. And what also stands out to me about Frank Thomas is uh, in the movie with Tom Selleck where he goes to Japan, yeah, the player that replaced him and where he gets sold to Japan was actually Frank Thomas. It was, yeah. So, yeah, Mr. Baseball. Mr. Baseball that Sean and I saw in the movie theater. We did. Uh, my second teamer is Donnie Baseball, Don Mattingly. Um, the best first baseman I think I've ever seen. I probably would have had him number one had he been able to play a couple more years. It's just a shame that injuries derailed what was just a pure pleasure to watch over time. Second base, I went a little different than Sean. I went first team Ryan Sandberg. You picked Ryan Sandberg? Because I'm trying to separate Ryan Sandberg, the player, <laughs> from Ryan Sandberg, the awful Phillies manager. I've never heard, you know, my, my brother only speaks vile things about Ryan Sandberg. Trust me, I wasn't happy about putting it, but I, I got to give the guys due. He was a great, great player, great Hall of Fame yeah. baseball player. Um, he'll never get there as a manager. Uh, just, <laughs> <laughs> just so on. And my number two is Joe Morgan. Joe, uh, yeah. Joe Morgan was, and Joe Morgan was one of the one of the first players that I kind of remember as I'm starting to pay attention because I think what stood out to me is you know those people that remember Joe Morgan the ball players. Joe was not a big guy, but he played a big man's game. I mean, he could hit timely home runs, he could knock in runs, but yet he could steal bases. He could play second base. He was a complete player, and he was one of the few back-to-back MVP winners. I think it was 77, 78. He won back-to-back MVPs with the Reds. So. All I know is he had that really cool chicken wing thing going when he would bat where he'd flap his, his left elbow. And he had some sizzle. He ended up you know, helping the Phillies get to the World Series in 1983. He did. Shortstop, Ozzie Smith makes my first team. Cal Ripken Jr. makes my second team. Very different types of players. And it's funny because I, I actually put together a batting lineup. I, I think I, I did the same. And I'm thinking to myself, Ozzy fits the first team better, and Cal fits the second team. Well, better. and the, and you know, and I was I. It's funny you say that because I thought the exact same thing. If if I'm doing my list, and you know, like I said, my my brain tells me it needs to be Cal is the the shortstop. But if I'm putting that lineup together, well, Ozzy fits nicely into the ninth spot. And didn't Ozzy Smith in that Simpsons episode wasn't he taking pictures of everything and he yeah. fell in that sinkhole? <laughs> he was and. To get like radiation or something. Yeah. No, no, no. That was that Mike Sosha. Sosha. Yeah. 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 Ozzy Smith fell in the, the bottomless pit. Right. And, and uh, he's taking pictures he on the way down. Pictures. That's right. All right. Um, third base, Mike Schmidt, first team. And second team, I, I did Wade Boggs over George, over George Brett, Brett. Over George Brett. Um, again, you know, I was kind of looking at my, my teams here, and Wade Boggs. One, I, I, you know, you look at silver sluggers. Wade Boggs won like seven silver sluggers in his career. A lot of them came, almost as many came in the '90s as they did in the 1980s. Kind of after George Brett retired as a player, because Boggs was younger than Brett. He was. And when he came up with the Red Sox, remember there was about a five-year stretch where his batting average was about 360, and he was, it was him and Tony Gwynn as the two best contact hitters in baseball. But Boggs actually had a higher average, and was a guy who usually led or was at the top of the league lead in doubles every year. I mean, the guy was just – and 
under very underrated defensively. Actually, won a couple of Gold Gloves in his career, so I, I felt Boggs deserved to be on that list for third base. Yeah, sure. No, that's that's I'm fine with that. So you omitted Barry Bonds on your list. I felt compelled to put him on the list uh, based on Barry Bonds, the Gen X era player, which I think was pre-steroid. So the the story goes the and I was there the day the day of the home run uh, der, uh, tor- or, yeah the home run derby in 1996 at the All Star game. Okay, when it was you know everyone gets eliminated except for for Bonds and Mark McGuire. And let me tell you, because I was there, it was hot. It was incredibly hot, and it was draining. And I, I, you know, you know, they're going round after round, back and forth, and. Bonds is wearing out, and he looks over, and there's McGuire looking all fresh. And he basically said he made the decision that day because McGuire wins the home run hitting contest. Right. And he looks at McGuire and says, I'm going to do that. And then he did. So, yes. So, basically, at least through 96, he's he's not using anything. And he was he was the best player in the game. He was a Hall of Fame player. If he, if he would have, at that point in his career, if he would have walked away from the game, Probably had enough to get him into the Hall of Fame at that point. That's what made me mad about the whole situation. Because I used to defend Barry Bonds. I used to, you know, people, because he was not a nice guy. And, right. and I would say, but he's the best player. He, you know, it's like he's one of the best players I've ever seen in my life. It, he's amazing. And then he, you know, kind of broke, broke, did the unpardonable thing for sure. me. So I have him on my first team. Uh, I also have Ken Griffey Jr. I think that's a no-brainer for just about anybody. I think so. I have Ricky Henderson. I, I know you like Kenny Lofton. I think Ricky Henderson is, to me, the best leadoff hitter of all time. Well, I have Ricky. Is, he's, my, he's my left hitter replacing Barry Bonds. Oh, that's right. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I moved yeah. him to number one. Okay. Uh, Ricky Henderson, you know, you have guys on here in my outfielders. It's like you want to try and take the guys who are the very best at what they did. And, you know, Barry Bonds being the best hitter that we've ever seen. Uh, Ken Griffey Jr., I, I would – as much as I love Gary Maddox and how consistent Gary Maddox was, Ken Griffey Jr. was a more spectacular center fielder. And a much better hitter. And just an incredible hitter. And Ricky Henderson was the best, you know, he was the best base stealer of all time. And it's not even close. Oh, he was, yeah. Uh, so, you know, those guys were the best at what they did. And uh, so that's my top list. My second teamers in the outfield, I got the Hawk, Andre Dawson. I loved Andre Dawson, the ball player. Uh, Reggie Jackson, like you, I agree. Mm-hmm. Uh, Reggie Jackson makes my list, as does Tony Gwynn. Oh, so you didn't just go left field, right field? I went outfield, okay. yeah. Okay. Because um, at the time, you know, I, I could have put Tony Gwynn in left field, Reggie in right, and Dawson in center. And I'll okay. think, I don't think, uh, you know, with Andre Dawson covering ground out there, I don't think I'm disappointed. It's what they used to do in the All-Star game. Right. You know, they used to just have you, – you would vote for outfielders. And sometimes there would be some pretty bad guys out there in center sure. field. Yeah. Greg, uh, Greg Lazinski playing center field. No, George Foster in center field. <laughs> oh, yeah. George Foster was a butcher in the outfield. But the guy hit 52 home runs in 77. Yeah. All right. My DH is uh, first team uh, Paul Molitor. Probably, you know, at, in the top – in discussion for the top three or four pure hitters yep. of my lifetime. Uh, Don Baylor's my second team DH. I thought Don Baylor was, he always seemed to have the ability of going to a team and making that team better. Mm-hmm. And I remember him doing that with the angels in 79. I think he won the MVP in 79. He did. Uh, and then he goes to Boston 
and he's with that Boston team in '86 that almost wins the World Series. So, and he he just had a hack a knack of doing that throughout his career, of signing with the team and having that that instant leadership. When he became afterwards, when he started becoming a major league manager, I remember that's what was said about him is the fact that he led a clubhouse. Okay, and he was known as a leader. So that's my uh, that's my uh, teams. I'll just give you my lineup real quick. See if you uh, would do it any differently. So my first team, I'm leading off Ricky Henderson. I'm batting Molitor two, Junior three, Bonds four, Schmidt five, Frank Thomas six, Johnny Bench seven, Ryan Sandberg eight, Ozzie Smith nine. Pretty good lineup. That's that's a really good lineup. Let's see if I can throw one together here pretty quickly. Obviously, I'm going to go Ricky Henderson leading off. Boy, number two is tough. Boy, that that is. That is with with my starting lineup. I'm going to uh, do. I put Carew at number two. Uh, let's 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 put Rod Carew at number two. I'm going to go with. Um, I'm going to go with the Hit King. Pete Rose hitting third. I'm going to go Schmidt fourth. Let's put Ken Griffey Jr. at number five. Uh, I'm gonna. I would have to change this. Uh, number six. I'm going to go Gary Carter. No, I'm not. I'm going to go Paul Molitor. Then I have Tony Gwynn. Then Gary Carter. It's and hard. Then, it's, and then, it's really and then Ozzie, hard. And then it? I'll put Ozzie Smith. It took at, me. It took me almost eight. as time to think about the lineup as it did about the team itself. But I would, you know, it's that. That's a good problem to have when you know that you know, as far as that's why you can carry some of them might be a defensive player. So if that's the case, if I'm doing the all-time team like a lineup like that. I'm probably going to swap out a Gary Carter and maybe put in a Pudge Rodriguez, who's a little bit better defensively, sure. and carry a, a defensive uh, shortstop because I have a, a center fielder who's a gold glover who also is a major producer. Right. All right. So, I mean, that's that's my offensive lineup and my, my starting eight out there in the field with my DH. Yeah. So I'm going now my starting rotation. So my first team... I'm going lefty, Steve Carlton, Greg Maddox, Randy Johnson, Jim Palmer, and Roger Clemens. That's my starting five. I have, as, as you can tell, I've, I've said it a couple of times tonight. Um, I think the only reason Jim Palmer has a lower uh, win total for his career is because he decided not to pitch into his 40s. I think he retired at like 36, 37. But... Uh, there was he was probably the toughest customer out there. He was the best pitcher on a great pitching staff that Baltimore had for for many many years. And I I think if I think of players uh, pitchers with like 250 wins or more, he's ranked like I don't know two or three in win percentage. I mean it's really really high. He was good, you know. Now when we saw him, it was at, towards the end of his career, mm-hmm. you know. So, but he was still, you know, considered an excellent pitcher. But he he wasn't necessarily the dominant pitcher that would have been, you know, early seventies. But he was he was the guy. You get the ball, he was probably going to pitch a complete game and give up two runs, right? And with Baltimore's lineup, they were going to outscore a lot of teams. But he was just one of those, uh, you know, cool customers um, known for his jockey underwear ads. <laughs> That he was. Uh, but he's also developed quite a respectable career as a broadcaster. Yeah. He's somebody who, whose opinion, when you hear him talk, he's, he's one of those guys that you respect because, you know, he he knows from where he speaks. And But I think 
we were fortunate enough to see enough of him as a pitcher to to really appreciate and say this guy was one of the best of all time. It's kind of interesting uh, with with a guy like Jim Palmer, who is really smart guy. You know, very very, as you can tell from as a broadcaster, you know, he he's, was very well spoken, but very opinionated, and mm-hmm. he. As great as he was, his manager Earl Weaver did not care for him. No, uh, but Weaver's smart enough to know you don't you know don't mess with the guy. That he was he was money out on the mound, and and you needed that every back then it was every fourth day, and that's what he gave you every time you go out. He, he didn't get hurt. He would go out there and make all the starts, and they were usually all quality starts. And there aren't too many pitchers in, in baseball history that could say that. But I think that's interesting, though. Oftentimes you'll get that where managers or coaches, they uh, they they will clash with, with the guys who are the thinkers. The thoughtful guys, yeah. They, they, they don't ever want to be questioned. And, and a guy like a Jim Palmer is probably going to question everything. Sure, yeah. So um, that's my starting five. My two relief pitchers. On my first team are Trevor Hoffman and Mariano Rivera. No real surprise seeing as the national or the uh, the two awards, the National and the American League Relief Pitcher of the Year awards, are named the Trevor Hoffman and the Mariano Rivera Award. So I think those guys uh, certainly deserve to be on the first team. So my second team, starting five, I go Pedro Martinez, Tom Glavin, Tom Seaver, Dwight Gooden. And this is a name that we haven't even brought up tonight, and that's Andy Pettit. Andy Pettit. Yeah, from okay, the Yankees. Okay, sure, yeah. Andy Pettit was one of the best money pitchers in the late 90s in, in all of baseball, and he, he proved it time and time again with the Yankees in the postseason, where if I wanted, you know, as a guy who was a quasi-Yankees fan uh, after the Phillies, and I followed that team, and if there was one pitcher I wanted on the mound out of – all the studs that they had in their rotation over those years. The one guy I wanted in a World Series game was Andy Pettit, hands down. And that Yankee kind of dynasty that they had there at the end of the 90s was – I considered a number of the players for, for my team. And just because a lot of them had like careers that went over into the 2000s. Mm-hmm. And it unfortunately, I, I, tried, I did a hard cut at you know 1999 – so, or else I think some of the other guys, like a Bernie Williams, you know, I thought about, obviously Derek Jeter. And Derek Jeter, I, you know, I, I looked at the numbers, I'm like, I just can't put him on there for five years. It's, mm. it's just not enough when some of these other guys had, like Rod Carew, a 19-year career in, you know, ba- you know not you know, some of the 60s too, but, I mean, you'd, you'd have these guys that would have these, you know, close to 20-year careers that covered the Gen X era. Sure. And, you know, Pettit is a rookie, one twelve. Uh, second year when the in '96 when they won their World Series they won 21, then he won 18, then 16, and then 14. He was among the tops of the entire uh, you know Gen X era and wins for that time period. So I I didn't think he deserved to be on in in the top. Obviously you have like Carlton and uh, Randy Johnson, but as as a postseason pitcher I put him up there with anybody in in all of baseball history at least that I've witnessed in my you know 50 years as a fan yeah i mean during that stretch the uh those joe torrey years he was money he he was he was definitely the guy and then my two relief pitchers uh no shame here uh dennis eckersley and lee arthur smith Uh, lee smith really did usher in i think the modern era the one inning closer prior to that you had the kent tug mcgraws bruce suiters uh your Raleigh Fingers, those guys would go out and throw multiple innings in a game, two, sometimes three innings to close a game out. 
Lee Smith was he was not a more than a one inning pitcher, and he was really one of the first of his kind to go out there just in the ninth inning to close the game out. And he was pure power, big, physical, intimidating. Uh, but they say he was the nicest guy. But he just had this blazing fastball, and he would just go and and blow guys away in the ninth inning to save games. Well, he come into the game in Chicago, right? And that's when the shadows started creeping in because they would always play those day games. Yeah. And at at that point, you know, half the plate would be covered with a shadow, and he'd be standing out there in the sunlight. And he's, you know, he went about six foot six, and probably about two hundred fifty pounds, and he just, you know. When you're pumping a 97, 98 mile an hour fastball in the shadows, yeah, it's virtually impossible for for the players to to do. But you know, the shadows helped. But he was still pretty successful when he moved on to other teams, especially St. Louis. Uh, you know, he had when he retired, he was the all time saves leader. So, and this I think should be mentioned about pitchers of still in the Gen X era, where and like with Lee Arthur Smith, where they were throwing hard. But they were throwing strikes. So I, I recently listened to an interview with, with Rod Carew. And they were, you know, talking about, you know, guys who would throw hard back then. You know, the, it comes about Nolan Ryan. And he said the reason he hit with the crouch was because when he first came up, he held his hands up high. And he couldn't catch up to Nolan's fastball. And he said, so he changed his stance. And then he was, you know, kept the bat level. And he said, but... Then the, the, the guy who was doing the interview said, yeah, he goes, you know, all these guys today, there's a lot of guys that have that velocity. And he goes, yeah, but he goes, they don't, they're not throwing strikes. He goes, there's a lot, a lot of velocity, a lot, you know, a lot of throwers out there, but not pitchers. Mm-hmm. And still, like what you're saying, Lee Smith, could he have thrown over 100 consistently? Probably. But he was throwing strikes, mm-hmm. and he was pitching, and he, you know, he was trying to get guys to chase. He wasn't just up there throwing as hard as what he could. Yeah, and I think the, you know the difference between the Gen X era and before that, compared to baseball now, is baseball is is all about the swing and misses. You know, pitchers I think are afraid to throw to contact, whereas you you talk to the old timers like Robin Roberts from the fifties and Steve Carlton in the seventies. And Carlton used to get mad at Bob Boone, and that's why he, they got him Tim McCarver to catch his games, is because Carlton hated the fact that Boone called for pitches out of the strike zone. And Steve Carlton was like, uh-uh, I want to throw a strike one, strike two, strike three. That's my game. Mm-hmm. Because if you look at the numbers and the number of complete games, you know Steve Carlton threw more complete games in one season than a lot of guys do in their entire career, especially now. I think that 72 season for the Phillies when he went 27 and 10 for a team that won 59 games. I think he had of his 27 wins, I think he had like 31 complete games and nine shutouts. And um you know, you'll never see stuff like that anymore. And but he, you know, he knew how when to rear back and throw 97 or when he needed to stay in the 92 range, but he paced himself so that because he wanted to finish the game, and that we right. don't see that anymore. Right. Yeah. And you know, the a lot of rule changes have come into play this year. You know, we're recording this in 2023, and Major League Baseball has done some things to speed up the game. If you go back and look at how the game was played in, in like, say, the 70s, and I, I encourage you, Scott and listeners, go back and go on YouTube and watch that 1978 All Star game. Vita Blue starts the game, and he is pitching so incredibly fast. I, I, I was timing him, and it's like 
barely seconds from the time he gets the ball to here rears back and he's pounding the strike zone. And I think that is one of the main things is they, these guys, like you said with Carlton, is pound, pound, strike, 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 strike. Yeah, and in that book I mentioned before about the 1980 Phillies where you can't lose them all, one of the one of the things that the author pointed out about the games that were played in 1980 was how fast the game was being played at the time. Because I think the Phillies played like 20 games, 20 or 25 games that year, under two hours, a nine-inning game in less than two hours. And yeah. and the majority, the majority of their games, it was, like, it was more than half. It was like 80 or 90 games that were played in under two hours and 30 minutes. But if you're going to pitch like that, you had to have good defensive players. So yes. as you can see with our list, Scott and I totally skewed towards guys who were good defensively. Yeah. Even like a Frank Thomas, he's a DH for me because he was an okay first baseman, where Don Mattingly and Keith Hernandez were spectacular first baseman. True. And if you're going to... If you throw 97 in the strike zone, sometimes they're going to be rockets. Yeah. And then you need to have somebody that's that can pick it there in the field. And that, that to me, was the part of the game I loved. Sure. I, where that, you know, I talked about, you know, the, the Hernandez at first and Schmidt at, at, at third and Ozzie Smith, you know, doing the same thing at short. That is what made the game fun to watch. Well, we've, you made me happy. We talked baseball. We haven't been doing that much at all. You know, we we occasionally do sports, and I appreciate everybody uh, following along with us as we uh, as we went baseball nerds this particular yeah. time around. And I, I'm sure there are a lot of sports fans out there. Hopefully, we didn't get uh, get to a level that made you guys either fall asleep or tune out. But if you stayed with us, thank you. We, we appreciate that. We certainly enjoyed it. And, you know, we, just, we like to keep things a little bit diverse. You know, I, I know that a lot of our fans love when we go back and do music. And by the way, I, I just I mentioned to Sean that I'm actually going to be seeing two concerts coming up here in the summertime. Is uh, we, we got tickets for uh, Amy and myself. Our birthdays are uh, mine's in July. Hers is in August. So in August for my birthday, we're going to the I Love the 80s tour headlined by none other than Rick Springfield and our local guys, the Hooters. Yoo-hoo! So they get mentioned again in another episode. But uh, we're going to go see the Hooters and Rick Springfield. Also, Tommy Two-Tone and Paul Young, every time you go every time you go away. Uh, that's, a, that's a good bill. Written by Hall Darryl Oaks. Hall. Uh, so we're going to see them in, in August and then in September uh, on the, uh, the final tour. It's Aerosmith, and we're going to see uh, Aerosmith uh, for one last time. Actually, it'll be my first time, so I've never seen them before live. But uh, two concerts coming up for uh, for you Gen Xers. Check them out online. I'm sure Ticketmaster probably has seats available wherever your city is, but they should be a couple pretty good concerts. I know the Rick Springfield concert is going to be going on, I think, until November. So that's going to be that's going to be running for a while, and they're going to be doing tours. And not necessarily big cities. It's going to be smaller towns and cities throughout the United States. Yeah, that's that. The, you know, especially the the Rick Springfield and Hooters uh, concert. That sounds really good. Looking forward to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. All right, so that wraps up this episode. So yes, the next sir. episode's mine. And you know, we, you know, we, as we say, we we appreciate everybody indulging our our baseball nerd uh, selves here. So you know, when when it comes to sports. What do you like, Scott? I mean, most fans, they like a good comeback, right? 
Absolutely. I mean, it's in some sports, like, you know, they'll have a comeback player of the year. Yes. Well, the same thing applies in music as well. Okay. And it's, it's always interesting when you have someone that, you know, might have had a hit um, and then kind of they go away. And then maybe five, six, seven, eight years later, suddenly they're back and they're, and they're stronger than ever. They're back on the charts again. So what I'd like to do is let's do comebacks. Okay. And especially kind of if, if we can keep them kind of, you know, they, it doesn't have to, like the, the original hit doesn't necessarily have to be in the Gen X era. If it is, you know, at least, you know, I mean, that's preferable. If not, if it's 60s, that's fine. Sure. Um, but what I'd like to do is play both. So let's play the hit, the original hit, and then the comeback. Okay. And we don't have to rank them, you know, but just come up with a list. I mean, maybe a dozen or so. Sure. And we'll do we'll do both. And because I liked when when we did the um, my, my songs for my birthday. Okay. And and what it was didn't share have like a hit in like nineteen seventy five. Seventy five and ninety nine. Twenty five like, years. That's kind of amazing. So that's kind of where I got the idea from. It's it's you know they you know. Artists that have been written off, and then suddenly they're back again. Sure. So we're going to do comebacks next week. Absolutely. Yeah, that sounds like fun. I'm uh, very much looking forward to that one. All right, so we're going to wrap things up here for the Gen X Playback Show. Once again, you know, as, as Sean said, you know, we say it all the time. We're, we're just amazed that we got a little community going here. And we also want to thank you for putting us in a, on a finally putting us on the list. Yeah. So we got ranked by the... Uh, Feedspot, which does um, rankings for podcasts in various categories. So under categories, top 40 categ- top forty podcasts about Gen X, uh, we came in at number 26. Yeah. So we want to thank you guys for, for making us a part of that. Couldn't be done without you, the listener. And we hope you tell a friend and get, get somebody else on this bandwagon because, you know, the more successful and the, and the more interested everybody's going to be in the more listeners we can get the more we'll keep going and it keeps scott and i enthused and excited so uh yeah let's 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 keep it going i know we were stunned to kind of see that list pop up yeah i couldn't yeah i was very surprised so all right so next week it's it's the great comebacks just like sean and i from our radio days we're coming back on the podcast world That's right so thanks for joining in to gen x playback where the brothers high i'm scott and i'm sean and we'll talk to you later see ya